Hey, thanks again for joining us online. Uh, there's a proverb that says, a merry heart is good like a medicine. And I know about you, in the midst of the stress of this coronavirus outbreak, the humorous things that have come my way uh, throughout a day have been really helpful. So I heard somebody say this, like, I wasn't planning on giving up so much for Lent. Uh, I, I've been having a lot of humor over Zoom meetings. Like, you guys, I, I've done a few Zoom meetings in my life here and there. But like this last week, I probably had more Zoom meetings than the entirety of my life. And they're awesome. Like, Lori was on with her small group Thursday night. I was on with my guys Friday morning. Nobody told me when there's like a group of people on a Zoom meeting, like your, your laptop screen turns into the Brady Bunch. It was awesome to see all nine of those faces up there. And you know what? Uh, Zoom is an amazing piece of technology, but I'm learning that it's as good as the connection. Sorry, just had to do that. So uh, here we are. Um, Bono, reflecting back on a traumatic day in his life, said this, Ireland in the 70s was a tough place. On any other Friday at 5.30 at night in 1974, I'd have been down on Talbot Street at the record shop checking out discs, vinyls. On May 17th, I rode my bike to school, and so I dodged one of the bloodiest moments in a history that divided the island of Ireland. Three car bombs coordinated to detonate at the same time, destroyed the Dublin city center. He said, my old friend Andy Rowan was locked in his father's van as his dad ran to save the victims, scattered like refuse, he said, across the streets. That day became the message and story behind his song that he would release later in 2014, Raised by Wolves. The lyric goes like this, face down on a broken street. There's a man in the corner in a pool of misery. I'm in a white van as a red sea covers the ground. Metal crash, I can't tell what it is. But I take a look, and now I'm sorry I did. 5.30 on a Friday night. 33 good people cut down. And then throughout the song, there's this just eerie lyric where he's saying, I don't believe anymore. I don't believe anymore. In a country marked with lots of, lots of religion, a country that now exceeds the fatalities of even China, I can imagine the strains of that lyric being sung across Italy. I don't believe anymore. The deaths now just are rising day after day. This past week, in the podcast that New York Times puts out, they interviewed an Italian doctor, Dr. Fabiano DeMarco, a professor at the University of Milan, the head of the respiratory unit at the hospital Papa Giovanni in nearby Bergamo. He talked about his thousand-bed hospital, how it's all now been turned over into like a coronavirus crisis place. All the specialists that know nothing about respiratory care and health, they've all been trained now how to treat these patients. 460 nurses, he said, are home. They're suffering from the symptoms. They're suffering from the disease. They're suffering from just burnout and stress. He says, my colleagues are very emotional. There's tears flowing all the time because for the first time in our lives, we are actually treating our colleagues People are dying and they're having to die in isolation. It's too dangerous to have the families come in. And the sad truth is we don't have enough equipment to protect them 
and to protect us. So oftentimes, the family doesn't even know that their loved one has died. Just a little over a week ago, in one day, he says, 20 patients died. And we're forced with this awful decision of having to determine who lives, the 85-year-old? Does he get a bed in the ICU? Or the 45-year-old? And the selection process is now based on the probability of survival. This past week, a doctor, Italian doctor, 57, dies in isolation for when he was treating the patients just days ago, he did not have the necessary gloves to protect them. And now he's gone. And so the stress is mounting all around us, within us. And we can only imagine what it's like for those of you on the front lines. And again, our prayers are with you. But there's nothing like pain and suffering to raise a huge question mark. Why? To try and sort out what in the world is going on. It's easy to imagine that in the midst of it, we could start repeating that line. I don't believe anymore. There's nothing like human suffering to etch that question mark, to carve it in the depths of our hearts. And it's good to know that this question why is a question that the, the writers of the Bible asked, even Jesus himself. In Psalm 10, verse 1. Oh, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? Or in Psalm 44, 23, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Jesus repeats the words of Psalm 22 on the cross when he says, My God, my God, why do you forsake me? And so this is what the argument looks like when it comes to this dilemma. It looks like this. If God is always good, he'd destroy evil, right? If God is all-powerful, he could destroy evil. Evil and suffering is all around. Therefore, God is not good, at least not all-powerful. But it's important to understand for all of us whether we are theists, believing in God, or atheists, believe that there is no God, this actually is an issue for all of us. Yes, for the people who know and love God and follow the scriptures, why does God allow pain and suffering? But also for the rest of us. How do we explain it? Why is there pain and suffering? And the important thing here is to understand the difference between the philosophical, theological discussion that we might have like in a seminary, you know, coffee room, in a classroom, over a cup of coffee, and the very practical existential question that has to do with our own sufferings that we're going through right now. So there's three basic answers to the question of evil and suffering. For atheists, it goes like this. Evil exists, God doesn't. For the pantheists, Buddhists, Hindus, New Agers, evil doesn't exist, God does. For theists, people who believe in God, evil and God exists. So before we look at how the Bible answers this question of why does God allow pain and suffering, uh, let me just raise some really important questions, five important questions for skeptics, atheists, agnostics, for all of us to kind of wrestle with. The first question goes like this. Is it possible that God could exist, 
that he's all good, that he's all powerful, and that he is going to deal with pain and suffering at a future time. Is it possible? Because the Bible story says that evil does exist and that God is going to take care of it. In fact, we read verses like this in Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is where it's all going. God says, I'm making everything new. Now, come on, you guys, we know this is true from just growing up as kids. So do you remember getting in a lot of trouble? And, you know, you were home, and mom was dealing with it. And then she said those dreadful words. Mark, you just wait till your father gets home, right? It's like, so you're going to deal with this later. Is it possible that God is good, all-powerful, and is going to deal with evil later? There's a second question. Is it possible that God could use that which is painful, that which is evil, for good? It's not that it's good but that God could use it for good. Is it possible? Let me give you an illustration. There's this awful syndrome. There's about 100 people in the world that have it. The average lifespan is about 25. It's called CIPA, C-I-P-A, congenital insensitivity to pain with anhydrosis. The victim, like little Gabby Gingrich from Minnesota, doesn't feel any pain. They don't sweat. They don't shed tears. They anhydrosis. At four months, she bit her fingers till they bled. At age two, they had to pull out her teeth. She could put her hand on a hot plate and burn the hand off without feeling a tinge. Parents that have children with SEPA, trust me, have one simple prayer, that their kids would feel pain so they wouldn't do something that would cause them to die. Is it possible? that God could actually use pain and suffering for our good. Lewis has a great quote about how God uses pain in our lives. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Third question. If our worldview doesn't include God, then how do we explain? How do we make sense of evil and suffering? Like if the forces of evolution in this chance random world, natural selection, are at work, then why aren't things actually getting better? It's no secret. The historians have made it clear. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history as we know it. 180 to 200 million people wiped out through monsters like Hitler and Stalin and Mao and many others. I found this fascinating editorial in the British Independent in response to Dr. Richard Dawkins, the author of The God Delusion, kind of the poster child for atheism, right? And he wrote an editorial that said this, is God the root of all evil? In response to that, this is what somebody wrote, sir, I like Professor Dawkins, am an atheist, but I cannot agree with the overly simplistic view that God is essentially to blame for everything. I've come to the view that most of the evils of the 20th century were the product of the age of enlightenment. And the notion that by applying rational principles, 
humanity could be perfected. This belief spawned the twin truths of fascism and communism. To assert, as Dawkins appears to do, that Hitler's problem with his Christianity is the fact that it has apparently escaped all serious historians. He is also noticeably silent on the mass murders carried out under both Stalin and Mao. I accept that historically much evil can be laid at the door of religion. But I also find that I have to regretfully accept the unprecedented slaughter of the 20th century is one of the end products of the rational atheism that I adhere to. This is a possibility that Professor Dawkins appears to be unwilling to accept. How do you make sense of it in your worldview, with or without God? There's a fourth question. Is it possible that the very question and dilemma of pain and suffering and evil may in fact point to the possibility of a God? Lewis, C.S. Lewis, the author of Mere Christianity, Lewis said suffering was far more problematic as an atheist than as a Christian. He said the fact that he decried injustice in the world begged how he knew what was just, how he knew what was good and what was evil. And then the kicker question for all of us, as we long for God to intervene, as we long for God to end all pain and suffering, is this question. Have I, have you, have we ever done or left undone something that's caused somebody else pain and suffering? Peter Kreeft is a professor of philosophy, taught at Boston College, and on his, his office door he had this cartoon of two turtles, one saying to the other, I'd like to ask God why he allows poverty, famine, and injustice when he could do something about it. The other turtle turns to him and says, I'm afraid God might ask me the same question. Go back to Nazi Germany and the war trials after that. There's a guy named Karl Adolf Eichmann, the head of Gestapo, Department of Jewish Affairs, the final solution, the one that kept the trains running to the death camps where millions and millions of Jews were gassed and brutally murdered. It was a Holocaust survivor who was exposed to this question. His, his name was Yehiel Denur. He was a witness during the trial of Adolf Eichmann. Denur entered the courtroom and stared at the man behind the bulletproof glass. And the man who had presided over all this slaughter, this, this monster. And, and as he came in and as he gazed at Eichmann, something happened. It's captured right here in this photograph. He collapsed. This is the moment right here. He said, I, 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 did, I didn't collapse because I, I was overcome with anger. He, he goes on to describe this. He says, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. In other words, he saw himself like, this guy looks like his neighbor. It looks like one of his relatives. And then he says, Eichmann is in all of us. In all of us. So how does the Bible answer this question? All right, we can take a little walk, you guys. So join me. Cameras, I think you're going to follow me. We're going to go over here to these three panels. 
So uh, a couple years ago, we were studying in the book of Genesis, and I asked our daughter, Claire, I said, Claire, could you paint kind of depicting the three movements of the book of Genesis, which really are the three major movements of the whole storyline of the Bible? And the, the story of Genesis is one of creation, and then it's one of decreation, or the rebellion against man, and how sin and the curse enters into humanity. And then there's this story of redemption that leads to final restoration, what we just read of a new heaven on earth. And, and so we, we start with this beautiful panel here of creation, and we're reminded that the storyline of the Bible opens God creating everything out of the chaos into this beautiful order. And everything that he creates on every day is ended with this phrase, it was good, 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 it was good. It was very good, God creating Adam and Eve uniquely in his image. And what we find out is he doesn't create Adam and Eve as robots. Uh, Eve is not some kind of chatty Kathy doll. My, my sisters used to have the chatty Kathy doll. You know, you could pull the string out. I think there was about 11 different expressions. And, and Chatty Catherine would say, I love you. Take me to school. Let's play today. He didn't create us like that. He created us in his image with the freedom to choose to love God or not to love him, to follow him or go our own way, to love our neighbor or just take care of ourselves. And he created us for a loving relationship. And so inherent in this risky business of allowing us, his creatures, to exercise free choices is this whole issue of evil. And I love how Claire's got it pictured right here in the midst of God's big, beautiful creation. Here's the potential right here that we could choose to do life on our own. And so God, in his grace, though, he warned them. In this beautiful place called paradise, the Garden of Eden, he said, you guys, you got everything to enjoy with each other, with me, the created order. I'm just putting up a fence. I'm just posting one wet paint, do not touch. And sure enough, Adam and Eve, they gave in. And that gets us to this panel. This gets us to decreation, to the rebellion, to what we call the fall, not the season, not having Eve tripping in the garden, but falling from grace, falling from God's blessing, and now the curse moving in to dominate their lives, their world, our lives. And the result, the Bible says, is suffering and pain. Pain and childbearing, he says to Eve in chapter 3. Pain and work, he says to, to Adam. It's going to be hard, the ground, thorns and thistles. And, and you're now under the curse of death. And they were separated from God. And, and so it's, it's like this virus called sin spread. And everybody has it. And everybody's doomed. Hey, kids, at the end of this message, I want you to do an experiment. You get a glass of water, ask mom or dad for some food coloring, and you just put one drop in that glass. And that's what happened when Adam and Eve said, you know what? We're not sure you are good. We're not sure you're telling us this is the right way to go. We think we're better at being God of our lives, and we're going to do it our way. That's when the drop came in, and that's where everything changed in their lives, in their, in their bodies, in their relationships with God and with each other, and the whole created world. 
But in the midst of the darkness, there was a promise. See it up there? there? There's that little box. It's that word of promise. That God somehow would mysteriously, because all we know is one of Eve's descendants. So li listen to Genesis 3.15, because this is the promise. God speaking to the serpent, Revelation 12 tells us, he actually was a created angel who chose not to worship God, but to worship himself. Jesus reference, references his rebellion in Luke 10. And so he's speaking this word of judgment, but in the midst of the judgment is this word of promise. And here's what God said. I will put enmity between you and the woman. There's going to be a war between your offspring and hers. But he, Eve's offspring, this future descendant of Eve, he will crush your head. That's a lethal blow. And in that battle, you will strike his heel. You will bruise his heel. Little did we know that promise is foreshadowing Jesus' death on the cross. So that gets us to the third panel, which has both the idea of redemption and full restoration, Christ's suffering and then the new heaven on earth. And this is the surprise in the storyline that all of a sudden the Bible introduces to us a God who suffers, not just a God who allowed for a world of suffering, but a God who enters into the suffering as he sends his own son into this world, born to Joseph and Mary, right? He's born into poverty. He lives in obscurity. He never sinned, Peter said. No deceit found on his mouth. And he was the victim of the worst kind of evil and suffering. And he carried all the pain and all the suffering. You think of all the injustices, all the horrors of the people we've just talked about, including mine and yours. All of it was laser beamed, all of it laid on Christ, all of it crushing Christ as he took on our penalty that we might be freed from that to return to the life that we were created for. And that is a life with a holy God. The story of God's redemption reminds us that God has done something. Not only did he warn them, but he also, he came in to alleviate the pain as he took on the most unbearable pain on the cross. And so this place, this world that we're in is twisted, it's broken, it's bent, but we know we're just living in the middle of a story, and the end of the story is beautiful. The end of the story is no more pain and sickness and sorrow and sadness. And Jesus' miracles on earth starts giving us this little foretaste of what it's going to look like, where things are made right, the withered hands straighten, the blind eye can see, the person who's deaf can hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised, little snippets of what's to come. And even now, life with God through faith in Christ and his spirit in us. And so God cares about evil. That's why there is hell. He cares about our pain and suffering. That's why there is heaven. And Christ suffered hell so we don't have to. And Christ is going to prepare that place. And in the meantime, he's given us his spirit until he comes. So he warned him, he suffered, and he understands our suffering, and he wants to use them for good. 
I think there's a unique time in uh, human history, a unique time where God has the attention of the entire world. I think it's far different than 9-11. But we remember what happened at 9-11. I remember. Man, people were flooding churches. But 9-11 only lasted about 9 to 11 weeks. And then pretty soon, everybody was back to normal. As Lewis said, God can use a time like this in a unique way to draw us to himself, to actually tune our ear to what he has to say, to the ultimate of truth and peace and hope. And what I found in my life with varying degrees of difficulty is good and hard go together with God's kids. Good and hard can go together with you right now, whether you know God or not, as you turn to him and trust in him. There's nothing like the weight of a trial to drive us to the sufferings of Christ. There's nothing like suffering that makes us more like him as we're in the fight of faith and saying, God, you're still worth worshiping even though my life stinks right now. There's nothing like pain and suffering to make us so much better at comforting people. You know when you've been there and someone, you're, I mean, you're really going through it, right? And someone comes up to you and they say, I know just what you're going through. And you go, no, you don't. You don't have a clue. And then there's somebody who knows, that you know has gone through something like you're going through, and you know they do know a lot about what you're going through. Man, we have that in Christ. He's our sympathetic high priest who's gone through everything, and there's not anything you're going through right now. Think about everything he's gone through. Fear, anxiety, the fear of dying, hatred, jealousy, slander, injustice, violence, loneliness, isolation, poverty, humiliation, threats, false accusation, false accusations, oppression, attacks, betrayal, rejection, and on top of that, crucifixion on a Roman cross. And all this pain and suffering should remind us, guys, this ain't heaven. These bodies aren't going to last. makes us hungrier for that better day, for that heaven on earth. Andrew Chung was an orthopedic surgeon, brilliant man, great friend, great father, husband. He was one of the leaders in our church back in Wheaton. We called them elders. Never forget the day that he invited all the elders to come to his house. He cleared out the furniture and put up 10, 12 folding chairs, and we sat around the circle, and I knew where this was going, but not everybody did, and he told us that he'd just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So if you know anything about pancreatic cancer, walk through that dark valley with somebody, you know it is awful. It's like, that's not the cancer you want to get. You're going to die within two years, and it is going to be excruciatingly painful. I'll never forget visiting him in palliative care up on the fourth floor of the hospital and seeing his family huddled around. And from time to time, he would sit up and then try and stand up because the pain was so unbearable. And he'd be leaning into his kids. He'd be rubbing his back as he just audibly groaned from the pain. He wrote us an email. This is what it said, excerpts of it. God visited me last Thursday night while I was in bed. I'd not been able to sleep that night and remember getting up to use the bathroom around three. I did not see a vision or I did not feel the flutter of angel wings or even hear a still small voice. But I had sweet communion with God like a child with his father. I remembered words from him flooding my soul 
The words did not enter my ears, but I felt like my mouth was wide open and I was like eating them up. In the last few weeks that I'd been in pain, I'd ask God over and over, why are you allowing me to suffer this pain? It's of no benefit to you. It's of no benefit to me. This is so meaningless. Why, God? Why, God? But that night, he wrote, he came and explained to me why. He knows the pain I was going through, but he wants me to experience this pain so I can understand more fully the pain that his dear son endured I've been a Christian for a long time. I've accepted God's gift of his son on the cross for my sins. But I've never fully understood why Jesus had to endure the agony, the pain of the cross. That night, I understood why. Enduring the pain and suffering was part of the price he paid for us. Having this pain from pancreatic cancer reminds me of the awfulness of sin and its consequences and allows me to appreciate more fully what it costs God to redeem me. During the visit, he did not indicate to me if he was going to heal me. It did not occur to me to ask him. At the time, it didn't seem to be important. There's nothing like pain and suffering to raise the question mark, to carve and etch it deep in our hearts. Why? But this message is all about when that happens, may you move from the question mark to the cross and remember the God who is willing to send his own son to suffer. Remember Jesus who suffered for you and me to one day put away all suffering. Remember his spirit, the Holy Spirit, who comforts us in all our sorrows. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you say to each of us today, as you said 2,000 years ago, come unto me, all you who are weary and worn out. I'll give you rest. You say in your word, cast your care, your worries on me. Because I care about you. You say in your word, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, let, let these things come before me so that I can give you the peace that passes human understanding. And Lord, we're doing that right now. Every day, our fears, our worries, we're throwing them to you, Lord, that you might give us this peace that passes human understanding. Grant faith. Strengthen faith. Lord, help us to embrace mystery for the things that we can't tie down as we acknowledge that you alone are God. The secret things belong to you. As we walk with you, Lord, may we point others to you, our great shepherd, our refuge and strength in a time of trouble. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hey, guys, before we go and uh, you get on with whatever you're getting on with, just a reminder that you can check out our online bulletin. As Ryan mentioned before, there's a Connect card. Send us your prayer request. Man, we want to be praying, all of us, and we're doing extra hard work of just staying connected as we find ourselves isolated from each other. 
If you're in the habit of giving here, you can continue to give online or start doing that. We appreciate that. Look for the resource page that will connect you to all kinds of things, resources for your family, for kids, for students. We're coming out with a new daily devotional. It starts this week, Monday. Ryan's got a great devotional on Psalm 1. We've got a scripture reading plan that takes us through Psalms and Proverbs every month. You can find that online as well. And then next week, you guys, we're going to do communion. We're going to do it from our homes here there, everywhere, and so be ready to bring some, some juice and some bread as we remember Christ's death, his sufferings in the midst of our suffering to give us hope. Have a great day.